0: at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson.
1: God has began to move in this situation. What we've been studying in the book of Esther, we see that there is a man who has, has arrived near the throne of the king that he has received the signet reign of that king. And in essence, he is leading. He is the one who is making decisions for the most part within this empire. And this man is an anti-Semite. He hates the Jewish people, and he stands in opposition to God's will because he has put his will above God. This is a satanic attribute. This is how the enemy thinks. And we need to be very careful not to be deceived, not to buy into this delusion where we think that that God is for my will. He is not. God is for the perfection of his will. And God is leading every true believer to submit to that and to remove ourselves from the desires of our flesh, which so frequently is is called destiny by false teachers. It's time to get serious and to be instruments of godly change. Take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Esther and chapter 6. Now, I made mention a moment ago, God is at work. He is moving to bring about change. And what were the two chief catalysts in this? First of all, it was the fast of Esther. And how she not only fasted, but the the women attendants that were with her. And also she encouraged Mordecai and all the Jewish community in Shushan, the capital, to fast those three days. And as we've learned, there is no such thing as a biblical fast without prayer. So fasting and praying these three days, and then the second catalyst is this sacrificial, this submissive attitude and behavior that that Esther, Hadassah, her Hebrew name, that that she exemplified. And when we fast and pray, when we are led by truth and we submit to that truth, and we recognize godly authority, and we move in order to have God lead and be present in our lives, in our situation, we can expect we should have assurance that God's going to do something. And we see the beginning of, of the effects of this prayer and fasting and submissiveness and obedience. We see this at the very beginning of chapter 6. So look there with me. Esther chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, where it says, Belialah hahu. Now, normally we think of the term Beyom hahu on that day. This is a term of judgment. But here, we don't have bayom Hahu, but rather we have Balala Hahu on that night. Now, night is an important term biblically. We know that in the book of Exodus, chapter twelve, this this chapter that, that is dedicated to Passover truth, when God moved to bring his judgment, his destruction on the, the Egyptians. He did so in the midst of night. And what we see here with this term, in that night, God began to work similarly to bring about a redemptive outcome for the Jewish people. So we read in verse 1, On that night, the sleep of the king And this next word, literally, before the sleep of the king, in Hebrew, the verb comes first, before the noun. So the sleep of the king was was wandering, meaning it's a word like a no man who's going from here to there, but never really arriving at one primary place. And this is what's happening, the king, it's an idiom. The, the sleep of the king was, was wandering about. He could not sleep that night. Now, the, the emphasis of the text, this is, uh, out of the ordinary. And the fact that he could not sleep and what comes from that clearly shows God is at work. And we're going to see beginning this chapter, all these things that were, were bad. These things that that appear to have a negative outcome for, for Mordecai, for Esther, for the Jewish people at large, God's going to move that. He's going to use things in order to bring about a godly change. So the sleep of the king, we could just say in an idiomatic way, departed that night. And he said to bring... A book, and the next work speaks of the next word speaks of that which is remembered. So, the book of of making mention, the book of memory. So, the events that are written down in history, it's a historical annual. And the end of, of this verse, where it says, or this phrase, Divrei Hayamim. Now, Divrei Hayamim is the same phrase that were translated into English as chronicles. We have the first book of chronicles and the second book of chronicles. So here within this empire, they had a similar set of writings, probably many volumes that they wrote down the history they reminded about, the significant events that took place each day in the kingdom. They wrote them down in this historical annuals, this this book of chronicles called the book of of memories, we might say. And we find that, that they were reading it before the king. Now you say, how does this show that God is at work? Well, God is not giving the king Achashverosh his normal sleep. And there's something out of the ordinary because we don't see him doing this at any other time. But he gives the order to bring the the annuals of history, this chronicle of what took place in the empire. And he asks, commanded literally, that it would be read by, by others to him. And the implication is... History oftentimes can be boring hearing just the the list of events and that this would make him tired and it would cause him to, to be able to sleep. But what was read and all of this is to show the providence of God. God is at work in this event, in all the events of this book. God is constantly present. You may not see him, his name might not appear in the book of Esther, but he's there working, working according to his goodness. So we read here in the next verse, verse 2, and it was found written that Mordecai declared concerning Bictana and Teresh. Now, we have two individuals, these men, Diktana and Terish. Who were they? Well, we keep reading. It says the two, and it's word for eunuchs, these were two high officials that were trusted. They were, were responsible for keeping, it says here, that they were the eunuchs, or sometimes, Bible just simply say, officials of the king. Me hasaf. Saf is the threshold. It's the entrance, in other words. And they were the ones that were the security guards, we might say, that, that would check and make sure that everyone who crossed that threshold that entered into where the king was, that that they had these two men's permission. They were responsible for the king's life. And what we're going to see is that that they betrayed their position. Why? We read, who were seeking, they sought in the past, to stretch forth their hand, that is a term of assassination. They sought to assassinate the king, King Virosh. Now, we read this, and, and Mordecai told this to Esther, who told it in the name of Mordecai. And this fact was written down in these annuals, this historical record in their book of chronicles. And it was investigated. it was saw that was true. and these two men were put to death, executed for this assassination plot against Ahasuerus the king now it all ended well Mordecai showed his faithfulness to the king but nothing was done and this whole event although was written down as we see here the king was never told about it this was the first time that he ever heard of assassination plot against him who were the culprits and who was the one who literally saved his life and let me ask you a question do you think that this is a, a coincidence there is no coincidence this is the providence of god using the right thing at the right time for the right outcome that's providence god moving doing utilizing whatever it may be at the right time, the right thing, that's going to produce the right outcome. So this was told to the king. Now look at verse 3. And the king said, What was done precious? Now the word yakar can mean uh, something that is expensive, precious, dear, something that has value it could be monetary value or it could be something of of personal that you care deeply that you give something that's meaningful so the king says you know what expensive what what dear thing what precious thing and great was done to Mordecai literally for Mordecai concerning this now the king recognized this this Mordecai he acted in order to save my life and what was done in behalf of that now obviously the king would want to encourage other people if they knew of some plot some threat of the empire the king someone else the queen whoever that that would be against the king's will that he would want people to to inform, to tell, to give that intelligence, that information. So he says, what was done to to reward him, in other words? And look at the end of verse 3, it says, the young attendants of the king, they said, and they were the servants, they said nothing was done with him. There was not done with him anything. He got nothing verse 4. Now, remember where we ended last week. We saw that that it was advised by the wife of Haman and his counselors, his dear friends, those who, who he loved, that he would do something, that he would build gallows, a large place, 50 cubits high, in order to hang Mordecai, the Jew, upon it. And then he could go to that second night festival, that banquet with him and the king and Esther, just these three, and that he could go there with a glad heart, having committed murder, the murder of his enemy. Now, Mordecai was not an enemy. Of Haman. Mordecai was faithful to God, but here's the important principle, and this is taking place, it's beginning now in our days, it's going to get worse, when someone's faithfulness to God is going to be, re- be viewed by others as, as making you an enemy to them, making you an enemy of that, that nation, that state, that That political leadership that that regime, that administration that's what's going to happen when you walk in obedience to God, you will become an enemy of those who belong to the world, and there's going to be punishment. This is what it's saying here. Mordecai, because of his faithfulness to God, is now going to be hung. This is what Haman's doing. He heard the counsel of his friends. He's made this gallow already to hang Mordecai upon it. So now look at verse 4. The king said, who is in the courtyard? And Haman, this is Haman literally, he came to the courtyard of the inner house of the king, the king's palace. So he's in the the excuse me outer the chatzer ha chitson so the outer courtyard of the 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 king's palace word says chhatser ha chitsoni and it says to speak to the king why in order to hang Mordecai upon the tree, the gallows, which he had prepared for him. So we see that, that Haman, and think of it for a moment, what time is it? It's time to be sleeping. It's in the middle of the night. But once Haman heard this counsel, He gave the order for these these gallows to be built, these high 50 cubic gallows to be built in order to hang Mordecai. He built them. They were complete. They finished in the middle of the night, and Haman could not wait, could not wait to get Mordecai on that rope and bring him to his death. So in the middle of the night, he's there in the outer courtyard. And what's he doing? Waiting until things uh, open up and he can make this request to the king. Now, he's there in the middle of the night. He doesn't know. The king's having the trouble sleeping. The palace is still up in the middle of the night. That night, remember how verse chapter 6 begins in verse 1, on that night. So he arrives, and everyone's awake. So the king said, who's in the courtyard? Haman had come to the, the outer courtyard of the king's palace. Outer is important. The inner one would have been impossible. Without taking that risk, so he's in the outer courtyard, the Chatsir HaChitzonah, and he's there to request permission to hang Mordecai. Verse, verse five. He asked the king Achashverosh, as who's in the courtyard? And now these same young attendants they say unto him, unto the king, behold, Haman is standing in the courtyard. Now i put a, a circle around that word standing. Why? Because it's in that rare construction. The present tense in the Hebrew, which always makes a passage emphatic. It's marked in a way to cause the reader to see significance. He's there standing in the courtyard to make this request. Furthermore, we read, look at the end of verse, verse five. And the king said, Yavo, meaning let him come, invite him in, verse six. And Haman came and the king said to him, what should be done? Literally, malasot, what to do with a man Whom the king delights dearly with, with a precious thought. So what to be done with the man, baish, not baish, with a man, no, with the man. It makes it emphatic. Whom the king delights with, with great, with dearness, with great, great precious thoughts for him. And Haman, thought in his heart, literally he says in his heart, to whom does the king delight? Who will the king demand delight to do something precious more than me? Now I underline that in my Bible, why? Because it speaks of the pride of Haman. Pride will go before fall. What we see is Haman thinking, of all the people, I'm certainly the one that he delights in more than anyone else, and that he'll want to do something precious for me, something honorable, something of significance. That's what that word yakar means, and it's most informing what he answers. Now, I made mention several weeks ago that Haman has that that blasphemous, that satanic character. And what is that? Well, I share with you that in Isaiah chapter 14, we learn that Hasatan, Satan, what he wants is to put his empire over that of God's. He wants to be God. And what we see here is, is that Haman, he wants to be king. And how do we know this? Well, when he thought that he was going to be the recipient of of the king's delight, notice what he says, verse 7. Haman said to the king, a man whom the king delights with with endearment in a precious way, in an expensive way. This is what should be done, verse 8. Let them bring lavush. This would be the the garment, the attire, we might say. And then we have the word malchut, which is king, or in this case, royal. Let them bring the royal garment, is what he's saying, which the king dresses in it. So he wants the royal garments, not just, just the king's clothes, but the royal one, in an official way when the king wants to present himself as king he's looking for those garments let them be brought and he says also the horse which the king has set upon it which he says in addition let there be given the crown the royal crown upon his head so he says what you should do to show your delight to this one that you find is precious that you want to do something extravagant this is what you should do you should have him clothed with the kingly garment put him upon the horse that the king rides upon and also put the crown that royal crown upon his head and and not only that but Something else, he says, verse 9, and, and set the, the clothes, the horse up by the hand of one of the servants of the king, and not just any servants, but it says, ha part to the noble one. So let it be given to the nobleman, one of the noblemen of the king's servants all of this, the garment and the horse, and let them clothe the man which the king delights in, in his pleasure with, in his precious endearment. So that's what he wants. He wants also for not only to be set upon the horse, clothed in the royal garment, crowned upon his head, the royal crown but he also says concerning these noblemen that they should uh, lead him riding the horse in the court or the square of the city and let them proclaim before him, thus the king will do to the man whom he delights in a precious way, in a significant way. So this is what he's saying. Now, why would he be asking for such treatment? Very simple. He wants to become the king. And he wants the nobleman to prepare everything like he's the king. The king's crown, the king's garments, the king's horse, the king's officials. That they put all of this upon him and march him through, causing him to ride upon the king's horse and to proclaim this is how the king treats the one who he delights in he wants the public to get used to seeing him with that crown in those garments on that horse and being being given accolades he wants to think of himself as the the one who will take over the crown that's his agenda. Whether one knows that or not, that's what's going through Haman's mind. Now look at verse 10. Now, Haman is prideful. And when you're prideful, you're going to easily be deceived. And therefore, he did not have discernment. His pride clouded up his ability to discern or to see reality but it was made real to him when the king says, now look at verse 10. The king said to Haman, quickly, what an important word, quickly take the garment and the horse, and just as you have said, thus you shall do to Mordecai the Jew. Very important, to Mordecai the Jew. Who sits at the gate of the king, remember nearly every time there are a few exceptions, but normally when when Mordecai is spoken of it's spoken he 's spoken of as the Jew who sits at the gate of the king, meaning he 's loyal that he's someone who gives correctly the king's judgment, the king's counsel, he enforces the king's rules. This is what the scripture is telling us. And notice, in a moment, we're going to see, because of this great act of, of sharing this information about the assassination attempt, assassination attempt we're going to see that, that the king's going to order Haman to do this to Mordecai. And this is going to totally surprise him. But ask a question. What does this honor bring about in Mordecai's life? The answer may surprise you. He says, You do just as you have said to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the gate of the king, and do not allow anything to fall, meaning be undone, in other words, do every detail that you have, have said exactly like this. Now, that was an order of the king. No one can refuse such an order. Haman had to do it. and, and this would be just just emotionally torturous to Haman to, to, to pay honor to the one that he had come. And don't you see the the irony of this? Here we have Haman wanting to kill Mordecai. And now the king is saying, pay him this great honor. And instead of carrying out his his desire in assassinating Mordecai, he's got to pay him this public honor. Verse 11, and Haman took the garment and the horse and he clothed Mordecai and he led him riding upon that horse. He rode him in the the square of the city and he proclaimed before him, thus the king will do to the man in whom he delights greatly, preciously, in a a large way. So, Haman, he had no choice. He had to do this act. Now, what we should glean from this is something very simple. God is at work. This is going to foreshadow something. It is foreshadowing the demise of Haman. He's not going to be successful. What he's about, what he wants to achieve, isn't going to happen. Instead of Mordecai and all the Jewish people being put to death, what's going to happen? Mordecai is going to be exalted. Why? Mordecai is faithful to God. Mordecai puts God first above all things. Mordecai lives sacrificially. Don't forget this. The fact that Mordecai would not bend the knee and bow to Haman, this could have brought about a death penalty. He was disobeying the king, but he was obeying God. This sacrificial faithfulness says a great deal about, about Mordecai, but also says something about God that God defends his faithful ones. Look now to verse verse 12. Now, the first part of verse 12 I emphasized in my Bible, I highlighted highlighted this why? Well, to be paid such an honor. I mean, this was what Haman wanted. More than anything else, this this being esteemed, this honor, having such Royal garments placed upon him and the crown upon his head, and riding that horse and, and being proclaimed thus before all the citizens of Shushan in the capital and the court or the square of the city. This is what he wanted. But notice all this attention, these accolades, this honor didn't change Mordecai. Why? Look, if you would, to verse 12. It says, and Mordecai returned to the gate of the king. That's where he was previously, and that's where he returns to. This didn't change him whatsoever. Here's the message. Don't allow the things of this world to change you, whether they be honorable things, whether it be wealth, whether it be prestige, whatever it might be. Don't allow the material to change you. Be faithful to your calling. Be faithful to what you're supposed to be doing. Be about your work, regardless of anything else. So Mordecai returned to the gate of the king. But notice, Haman. This foreshadows what's going to happen. But Haman, so important. But Haman, he... And the word "dachuf" is a word for something urgent. This is "nitchav." This is like to be driven with urgency. This is to do something urgently. And what it was? Well, let's just read it. It says, "But Haman was driven to his house. How avo morning vachapui rosh." Now, chapui is a word for, for covering. And what it is, and you've seen people sometimes that, that are accused of a crime, usually the fact they behave this way shows that they're guilty. Not always, but, but frequently. They're ashamed of themselves, and therefore they cover up their face with some, some garment, with their jacket, whatever. They don't want their face to be seen because they're so, so humiliated. This is what is happening to Haman. The fact that he had to do that act to all people, to Mordecai, the Jew whom he hated and wanted to remember the context. He's there at the king's compound in that outer courtyard to request permission to hang Mordecai. And what's happening? The king wants to praise him. The king wants to treat him preciously. So we see this change. At one time, the king and Haman, they were in agreement. Haman would lead. The king would follow. That's what Haman wanted. But now there's a break. The king is thinking one way and Haman is thinking another. Why? Prayer. Fasting. Submissiveness, obedience, faithfulness of Esther of Mordecai and the people, the Jews of Shushan, who have also fasted, so he went home mourning. this was like death, as so someone died, and he was humiliated with his his head covered verse thirteen, and what did haman do? what says Haman told to Zeresh, Zeresh is his wife, and to all of his loved ones, all of his friends, and all whom whom he called. So he got a whole bunch of people around him, and, and he told them what had happened. And notice what it says. His wise ones and his wife... Zeresh, they said to him. Now, notice there's a change. The, the previous times, when it's mentioned, the friends, uses the term ohev. Ohev is love. It's in the plural here for loved ones. But there's a change. Now they're called chachamim, wise ones. And what causes this change in language? Anytime there's a change. In language we should see it as important as having great significance. it's a clue from the biblical texts and why are they wise because they know something now the question is are they going to are they going to respond with wisdom and, and we see an indication that they will why? once again verse 13. They said to him, who the wise ones and his wife, they said to him, If from the seed of the Jews, Mordecai, is Mordecai, a shir ha chilota whom you have began to fall before him. lo tu how lo, you will not, be able, you will not prevail against him. Ki ti tipol, very important expression. Same word, different construction, but same word twice, which means you will certainly, you will utterly, and this word ti tipol, it is, you will certainly fall before him. They're called wise because they are speaking about a future defeat of Haman because the Jewish people they're going to find victory in the last days every Jewish person no a remnant this is important information this is to tell us that there's a future day of victory for for Israel against those enemies who are following the purpose the plans the objective of of Hasatan, of Satan. And this is why we we don't teach, as so many others do within Christianity, not all, but a growing percent. And perhaps when we look at, at Christianity at large, it is an overwhelming view. Now, I talk to people about this And because they come from good Bible-believing teachers, Bible-believing congregations that teach the Word of God, they they are kind of insulated. But they don't realize that most mainline denominations in America and throughout the world and the Catholic Church by and large all teach a, a type of, to a certain degree, replacement theology a theology that says that that God has no unique relationship any longer with the land of Israel with the Jewish people all of that has been has been set aside and it's a growing and hear this it's a growing view within the evangelical world now it didn't surprise me when we look at some of the mainline denominations and catholicism that we see These mainline denominations and Catholicism really isn't uh, uh, a movement based upon the authority and the inerrancy of the Word of God. They allow councils and meetings and individuals and their interpretations and their desires and society and changes in culture to influence them. They see the Bibles almost as a fluid document that needs to be reinterpreted in light of culture, in light of of future things and what's going on even in the present. So that's how they do. But it is most alarming that we're seeing a growing number of evangelicals. And what is so unfortunate is that many of these evangelical leaders, they are are put forth through some of the leading magazines and and institutions and such as, as great biblical scholars when they are not because they do not base their teachings upon prophetic truth. We see there's going to be a great victory. Messiah taught this. So when you're sitting under a leader that says Jerusalem has no more future and, and God's not going to do anything in regard to that land, this goes against what God has promised. God has promised. So let's look again. Look at verse 13. Very important statement. Zerish and these wise ones, they say, If, and this could be mekevan, it's the word im in Hebrew, but it could have the meaning. One of the the meanings of this word im is oftentimes understood by the phrase mekevan, which is sense. Sense from the seed of the Jewish people is Mordecai, whom you have began to fall before him. You will not prevail against him for you will utterly fall before him. Verse 14, our last verse. Now, as this was going on, what happens? There was a knock at the door. Those ones who were sent by the king, because what's happening that night? What's going to take place? Well, that evening is the second banquet of Queen Esther. When she has promised to reveal her petition and her request before the king, to do so only before the king and Haman. Only these two are invited. So we read in verse 14 While they were still speaking with him, Zeresh and these wise counselors, it says, While they were still speaking, the the eunuchs of the king his servants, they arrived and they hurried to bring Haman to the banquet, this, this event, this party, which Esther had prepared. So we already see that God is at work, that Haman and the king, there is a breaking in, in this unity that was prior. And what broke it? What brought the change? Well, I'm going to say this. This is the third time in this message. But you need to not only hear it, but adapt this truth to your life. What caused this beginning of change? Mordecai being prophesied as going to be exalted. Haman prophesied. He's going to fall and not be prevailing. What causes the fasting, the praying, the unity within the Jewish community, the body coming together in prayer and fasting, Mordecai and, and Esther being submissive, obeying the revelation, submitting to the purposes of God. When we do that, we can expect change. Well, things are going to get very interesting as we move into these last few chapters of Megillat Esther, the scroll of Esther. We're going to see more and more the providence of God to bring about changes. And here's what's so, so significant. To bring about changes that only God could bring about. So let me close by asking you a question. Do you want changes, godly changes, righteous changes, holy changes, changes that glorify God in your life? You can't do it. You don't have the authority, you don't have the power, you don't have the resources, you don't have the intelligence. You can't control anything. But God has the power, the authority, the ability, the wisdom, the knowledge, and the, the, the mindset to bring about his will. Therefore, submit to him, agree with him, walk with him, pray to him, fast to him, allow God to be the Lord of your life. And then you will begin to experience the providence of God in your circumstances. This is what we have seen, this is what we have said, and this is what we're going to see in a very clear and demonstrative way in the rest of this book of Esther. Well, I'll close with that. Until next week, Shalom from Israel.
0: Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others.